life. Good to be with you this morning. Always is a pleasure to be in Bluffton, Indiana, and share worship with Life Community Church. So thank you for the invitations from Steve, and uh, we do pray for his time in Florida with his family. Uh, as you saw, my name is John Jenkins. I live in Fort Wayne with my lovely wife, Robin. Work for the YMCA, and I do this on occasion. I used to do it full time. As I told the first group, I'm not a pastor. Uh, I, I sort of resonate with that passage in Acts 13, where it says in Antioch there were gathered together certain teachers and prophets, and uh, that's sort of the line that I take. And so we're going to do a prophetic teaching today, or at least a teaching that has a prophetic edge to it. Uh, and so relax if, if you get nervous at the idea of prophetic. We're not talking about the Antichrist or... Uh, the man of sin or, or the beast with ten heads and seven heads and ten horns. We're talking about something much more uh, real. Actually, excuse me, that's a bad word. Those are real things. It's just that they're uh, spiritually discerned and, and uh, there's lots of different ideas about what those are. But we're going to look at the book of Jude. Jude. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it up. I'm not going to be reading large portions of it, but I will be addressing a couple of different verses. I I read out of the New American Standard. I, I apologize. It's probably a little different than most of your um, translations. Uh, so if you just want to listen rather than follow along, that's great. Or just see how the NIV or NLT or whatever parallels that or follows along. Um, Jude uh, is the last book next to Revelation, next to the last book of New Testament. If you, if you know what it is, just one chapter, 25 verses. <clears throat> and uh, it really would have been Jude 2. But he never got around to Jude 1, so that's Jude 1. Um, I say that just to say that most second letters in the New Testament have a prophetic uh, bent to them or a portion of Scripture. Second Thessalonians talks about the man of sin. Second Timothy talks about perilous times to come. Uh, Second Peter talks about the end time, the, the burning up of the entire cosmos at the coming of the Lord and the restoration of the earth. Uh, Jude would have been Jude 2. Because he says in, in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he, he thought about, he wanted to write a, a book like Ephesians or First Peter or one of the other books that uh, discussed the basic tenets of the faith and of the, of the gospel. He wanted to write about the church life like Paul did to Timothy in his first letter, something like that. And he ended up instead writing something that was more pressing. And he writes to an unknown group of people. We don't know who, who the people that he's written to, except that they are those who are the called. Those who are the called. So that includes all of us who've come to know Jesus and who've listened to the voice of Jesus calling us to himself. And uh, we're kept by him for a salvation to yet you reveal. So, so he's written to us. He's written to us in the 21st century, which is pretty prescient because we'll see in a minute how, how many parallels there are between his letter here to people in the first century and people today. What he's writing to ask them and implore them and impel them is to contend earnestly for the faith, not just for faith itself, but for the faith. And as you read in the New Testament, from early times, from early as Acts in the 8th chapter, Christianity is called the faith, the faith. 
It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not a dogma. It's called the faith. Notice that Jude did not say, I want you to contend earnestly for the gospel, although he might have, but he has something deeper and broader in mind than that. Paul alludes to it in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans, and I'll read to you that just quickly because I, I really believe that Paul, Jude obviously uses the right word. He, he tries to help us understand, obviously, that we're contending for something more than just a message, contending for a life, a lifestyle, for a community, for the righteousness and the honor and the glory of God, for the trustworthiness of his word. So when we use the faith, we're talking about the whole counsel, the whole uh, uh, concern of the kingdom of God. So Paul would say it this way in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed. And you've probably heard this, God, this verse, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. I'm not ashamed of that message, the message that he is the sin bearer and the, and the righteous son of God who was buried or was crucified, buried and rose again for me and for the entire world. And he was risen again and seated now at the Father's right hand. I'm not ashamed of that gospel, he says. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Not, not just the power of God, but the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And then notice verse 17. It may be a verse you're not quite as familiar with. It's verse 16. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, but the righteous or the just man will live by faith. And so Jude is impelling us and calling us to, to contend earnestly for the righteousness of God. To, to not lose hope in the very fundamental, foundational truth that God is right and everyone else is wrong until they agree with him. <laughs> He's calling us to contend not just for a personal faith in Jesus, but for a lifestyle that just live by faith. They don't just come to Jesus by faith. They don't just accept a truth by faith. They live by faith. And that's what he's calling the believers, the elect, the called to contend for. And before he gets into the reason why he's calling them to contend for that, and before he gets into to the reminder of, of why it's necessary that he should write this second letter, so to speak, when he really wanted to write the first one and why he needs to pay attention to this, because it's not very comfortable. He'd rather do something else than this. We, we need to understand that. This morning, I would rather be saying something else to you than what I'm saying, and I feel bad for the first group because I'm, I'm still working through this, but the Lord won't let me alone from this. He's, he's held my feet to this. I'd like to, like Jude, I would like to be talking about something else this morning, you know, like the message of a, of a year ago or so about the suffering servant or or, or some other uh, form of, of what we preached before, but, but like Jude, I'm, I'm compelled today. And so before Jude uh, gets to the fact, uh, gets to the point where he has to sort of get down in the weeds, so to speak, and, and get real and honest with the, the, the call, the people he's writing to, he, he, he does something a little different. He reminds them of three moments of judgment that God visits upon uh, certain individuals or certain groups of people. And so the first one he reminds them, he reminds them that 
that there were a group of people called the Israelites. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Hopefully, if you've been long in the faith, you've heard this somewhere, that the people of God had come to Egypt to avoid a famine. They had journeyed there, sojourned there, and grew there. But in the time of growing there, the Egyptians, fearing their size and strength, enslaved them, made them bricklayers and masons, and made them build things like the pyramids. And uh, God delivered them. They groaned and they cried out to God, and he delivered them. And you remember how he delivered them. He delivered them by the lamb, right? The lamb that was slain at Passover, and the lintels and the doorposts were, were spread with the blood of that lamb, and the children of Israel were, were ushered out of Egypt on that last night of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn of all the other Egyptians. The Israelites were saved as the firstborn of the Egyptians died because the lamb of God, his blood was shed over their household, and they were ushered quickly out of Egypt, and they went into the wilderness, and they were confronted then with the Red Sea before them, and the Pharaoh's army behind them, and the power of God came down on Moses, and he stretched out his rod, and the Red Sea parted, and it's a great and wonderful story, and they walked over a dry shot, and then the Pharaoh's Egyptian chariots came behind them, and the Red Sea closed over them, and they came out victorious, and you would have thought all is well with the world, and it's good, and all they'll go on to good things and to glorious things, but what's the story really tell us? The story tells us that they continued to grumble and complain against God. They distrusted him. They distrusted Moses, their leader. They grumbled and they reviled him. They sought after what the scripture calls strange flesh, which is women who served other gods. And they uh, married with them. And, and God was so disgusted with that group that he let them die in the wilderness. Everyone over 20 that came out of Egypt died, never making it to the promised land, the land of promise, the land that flowed with milk and honey. And so Jude wants to remind the call that that happened, that that's not a myth, that that's fact, that that happened, that God did judge a people because they, they uh, did not f have faith in him, uh, that they did not trust him, that they did not obey him. And then the second thing that he reminds them of about some angels, and this is a mystery to us, and we believe that Jude was reading from the book of Enoch. It's not a canonical book, but it's an interesting book, and it is, there are some parallels between it and Genesis. Genesis makes it to the canon. Enoch does not for reasons that are long and interesting, but I won't get into them today. Uh, but there are about angels, it says, that did not keep their proper abode, their original domain. There's an interesting scriptures in, in Genesis about the, the, the sons of God coming down to the sons of men and, and intermarrying and creating a race of giants. And Enoch tells us these were the angels, the angels that did not remain angels, but took on the form of human flesh and human likeness and left their original boat as angels and came down and lived as men. And it says that God judged those as well. And he's keeping them in utter darkness, it says, for the judgment of the great day. And then the third thing, the third place that Jude reminds the called about is a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And perhaps you know it. It was a place that uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, finally dwelled in when Abraham and Lot were journeying in the land of promise. And it came to part where some angels were visiting Lot because God had seen the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these men of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sexual relations with these angels. And uh, God destroyed that city, those cities, fire and brimstone. And they remain, again, historic fact, not a myth. And Jude reminds them that God knows how to punish those who do evil those who do wickedness. And the reason that he brings these three up is because right before that, he reminds them that certain persons, the reason he's called and written to them today and, and, and is writing what he's writing, 
because he recognizes that certain persons have crept into the, to the congregation, to the church. And they've crept in unnoticed, it says. They, 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 they were here amongst us, and we didn't notice it, he's really saying. Uh, and, and before they even got to us, he says, they were destined for Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destined to fall in the wilderness. They were destined for outer darkness. The reason being is because they were ungodly persons. Even though they crept in among us, the godly, they were ungodly. And even though they crept in among the called, they were the condemned. And there's a whole mystery about why that is, and we won't talk about that today. But they crept into the church to do one thing, and that's verse 4, to turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and the second thing, to deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the reason they crept into the church, we wouldn't have allowed them to come if they would have expressed their intentions straight up, is that they came in to bring license to us under the guise of grace. Now, there were two things that faced the church in the first century, and the first one that faced the church the, the danger, the heresy that faced the church was the heresy or the danger of legalism. And perhaps you, you know about that. The, the idea that to be a true Christian, you have to embrace Judaism as well. You have to bring into Christianity the traditions and the methods and the law of the Jews, of the Mosaic law. So you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the feasts and you've got to have the calendar, the Jewish calendar. And you've got to do the, the, the tithing and you've got to do the fasting and you've got to do all the things that the law requires for you to be a proper Christian. And the, and the, and the prophets address it, the apostles address this, especially in the book of Galatians. I think you went through it a couple of years ago. Uh, this is a very specific book of, against legalism against Judaizing the Christian faith. But no sooner was this faced and to some degree overcome than people like Peter and Jude were recognizing there's another problem coming to the church. And it's not coming from the Jewish world as much as it's coming from the pagan world. And pagans are coming in and they're, they're recognizing that, uh, that we can make uh, whether they recognize it in their own intellect or whether they were simply moved on by Satan, we don't know, but they recognize that there's a place I can get away with anything and still feel like I can be forgiven. And turning the grace of God into licentiousness, the word, the basic, the root word is license. I can, I can, I, I have a license to do anything. If I'm forgiven, if I'm, if I'm been, my, the blood has been shed for me, if I have been uh, uh, redeemed because of the death of Christ, uh, then I can do anything. And that's called licentiousness. We don't talk much about it nowadays, but it's the, it's the challenge facing us today. I would say even more than legalism. Legalism has never left the church. I understand that. It's never, never gone far away from us. It's only on the periphery. But in the hour that we live in, it's certainly true that there are those who've crept into the church into the church, not just this church, but the, when I say the church, I mean the church of Jesus Christ, especially of North America, who, who want to turn the grace of God into licentiousness, who basically say that my happiness is, is priority over all other concerns or constraints, that chief 
the chief good for me is God loving me so that I can feel good about myself. And really, feeling good about myself then means doing anything I feel like I should do or can do or want to do. License to do anything. And it comes to us in a lot of different ways, but of course, in, in this hour, it comes to us specifically. It's been coming to us specifically through the sexual mores of this generation. And I'm 59 years old. I've walked with the Lord for 38 years now, but even in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, sexual perversion and licentiousness was certainly part of our world. Uh, we, we, didn't, we, we didn't invent sex in the 21st century, right? Uh, it, it's been around us, and licentiousness has been part of uh, the, 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 the toolbox, I should say, of Satan to try to bring the church to its knees. Not only bring it to its knees, but dissipate it and destroy it. And so that's why Jude says, I'm calling out to you, beloved, so that you might contend earnestly, not just for your own personal faith, but for the faith, the faith. For we can look in history and see wherever licentiousness has had its way in the church. It's not many generations before there's no church. We can look at numbers of denominations and movements across historical Christianity and see that wherever licentiousness, that is wherever anything goes, because God loves me and he'll forgive me, wherever that doctrine has taken root, there is not far after that the loss of and the destruction of what we know as Christianity or the faith. Now, Christianity may still have been there in form. There still may have been churches or temples or whatever that might be, but the faith, that is a heart-felt, heart-breathed trust in the righteousness and person of God, in the lordship and mastery of Jesus Christ, as Jude said, has disappeared. It's just all bells and whistles at that point in time. It's all smoke and mirrors. There's no real fundamental faith. God is not acting on their behalf, and they're not worshiping God in truth and spirit. They're just putting on the show, going over the motions. And where that happens, then no matter how long it will take, eventually the church will not be there. Look back at your history. There are many places in our world today where the church was vibrant at one time, where there is no church today. Turkey is the place of a good number of churches that Paul wrote to Ephesus and uh, numbers of other churches. The, 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 the north shore of, of Africa, Alexandria, were places where the early church thrived. And yet because of either licentiousness or legalism, there is no church today. And so when he says to us, contend earnestly, he's, he's not saying this just in passing. It's, it's the fundamental thing of his heart. And he'd like to be talking about other things, but he has to talk about this because it's so vital. And so what I want to say to us this morning, that the future of Christianity, and I don't want to seem maudlin or, or uh, over the top, but the future of Christianity, the future of the faith, vital Christianity, faith-building, faith-expressing, righteousness-inducing faith, Christianity, depends on us and whether or not we will allow persons to come into us unaware 
and let their uh, licentiousness grow amongst us. And then in the following verses 8 through 16, he talks about who these people are, and he likens them to three historical figures of Scripture. He likens them to Cain, to Balaam, and to Korah. Cain, you probably know, it's the first fratricide, first murder in the Bible. Why Cain? Because those who come into the church with licentiousness seek to divide the church, seek to destroy fellowship, seek to pit one side against another, seek to bring divisions amongst the church, the liberal versus the conservative side, the traditional versus the new side, the old, new. There have been those divisions in the church from the beginning, and it's often started because someone came into the church with a message of license. We can do anything we want because the grace of God is there. We don't have to listen to authority. We don't have to listen to Scripture. But Paul or Jude reminds us that the faith that we're contending for was once and for all handed down to the saints. There have been countless, countless challenges to the Word of God as handed to us in the first century. New ideas, new visions, new ways, new philosophies, challenges that have to do with the way the world looks at things now rather than the way that God looks at the world. And so Cain is that spirit of division, that spirit of destruction, that individual who comes in that tries to divide the church and gets, gets uh, the, uh, some pleasure out of fights and contentions who's jealous for what God is doing in somebody else's life, who's jealous for the benefits of true sacrifice for the true called. That's really what Cain and Abel's story is all about, right? Cain really didn't want to give up as much as Abel. Cain wanted to go pick a few tomatoes and bring them to God and say, that's good, right? Abel, on the other hand, sacrificed. He put to death the lambs of his flock, which would speak of future benefit, future progeny, right? And Cain was jealous at this, and so he murdered his brother Abel. The second one is the guy by the name of Balaam. Balaam. How many, how many know the story of Balaam? All right, we've got a few Balaamites. No, you don't have Balaamites. People who know the story of Balaam. Balaam is a prophet of the Old Testament. He hears the word of God. He knows what God says. There's a group of people that want to have him curse the Israelites. They want to have him speak God's word over Israel so that Israel would not have success in their battles in the promised land. And Balaam takes their money, takes their money so he can curse the Israelites. Thing about it is, God won't let him curse the Israelites, and he can't, he can't speak against them, and he's frustrated. Three times they come to him, Balaam, we want you to curse the Israelites. Balaam goes out, tries to do it. God won't let him, won't give him a word. He comes back, I can't do it, I can't do it. Well, if you can't do it, you can't have our money. So Balaam comes up with another idea, right? So Balaam says, I know how you can do it without me cursing them. You can get your daughters to come marry their sons. That's how they'll fall in the wilderness, and that's exactly how they fell. 
And so the Balaamites are those who try to bring the world into the church so that we can un unite with it and that we'll be okay with it. Now, there's nothing wrong, and it's very important that we be able to contextualize in our language the gospel. It's, uh, the gospel is not expressed in the same way in English as it is in German, uh, in Swahili, or in any of the native languages of South America. And, and the idea of a suffering servant and the idea of a sacrifice are a little different in every culture. We're not talking about that. We're talking about can the church then begin to embrace the modern mores and morals of our culture and not feel so out of step with it? That's Balaam. Balaam's saying, hey, if you get the world to come into the church, the church and the world can unite, and pretty soon there won't be any church. It will just be the world. And so that's what these, these individuals are creeping into the, to the church because they, they don't want to be anathias contramundum. In other words, they don't want to stand up against ridicule. They don't want to stand. They don't want to look different. They don't want to, they don't want to look judgmental. They don't want to look uh, like they're sticks in the mud, and therefore they call in for air. And then the last one is Korah. Korah was a gentleman who, who reviled and uh, uh, grumbled against Moses in the, in the wilderness. Moses was the leader, God's chosen leader of the Israelites. And Korah was a gentleman who came in and said, who are you? God talks to more than just you, Moses. And he came in and tried to upset the whole congregation by drawing people away from him. And so these people that have crept in are, are divisive, brother murderers. They are worldly, and they have worldly ways. And then last thing, they are their own authorities. They listen to no one's authority but their own. They make things up from their own heart. If it feels right to them, that's the highest authority. And friends, if I have described to you today's world and you didn't get that, I think I didn't do a very good job because that's exactly the kind of world that we live in. We live in a world where men despise authority. You can't tell me anything. I'm my own authority. We live in a world where we join with the earth or with the world so that we don't feel out of step with the world. And then finally, by doing so, we are jealous of those whom God actually does bless. And what Jude is saying is, church, listen, that there are those amongst you who are trying to destroy your faith and the faith of the church, and you've got to recognize them for who they are and contend earnestly for the faith, not against them, but for the faith. And that's an important thing to, to remind us, because we're going to go into the... Into the uh, into the solution for this in a minute. We're going to go into the, into the medicine, so to speak, the remedy for how we do actually contend earnestly for the faith. But we must remember, as Paul says in Ephesians in the sixth chapter, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul, Jude is not saying, mark these men out and destroy them. Paul, uh, Jude is not saying, mark these men out and mock them in return. Jude is not saying stand against them until one of you succeeds. Jude is saying what they're trying to do is destroy the faith. But if you will contend for the faith, God will deal with them. That's the whole point of the first part of the book. God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. God dealt with Korah. God dealt 
with the angels. And God will deal with those who try to destroy his church. It's not my job. It's not your job. Can you say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to do that job? Amen. What my job is to contend for the faith. Not let the faith be destroyed because of these men. Now, our political atmosphere, as you well know, is just the opposite. The political atmosphere is not about the truth. It's about ad hominem attacks, right? We really can't care any less, uh, couldn't care less what we believe anymore. It's just if you don't believe what I do, you're a fool, you're evil. That's not what we're called to. We're not called to a political battle here. We're not called to a military battle here. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul says, right? But against principalities and powers. These men who've crept in unaware have crept in at the behest of a greater power than you or I, at the behest of a, one called Satan. They were doing his will and his bidding. And standing up against him by and in our own power is a foolhardy thing to do. And so Jude is not saying stand against them, but contend for the faith. Don't let them take the faith away from you. Don't let them destroy your faith and the faith that is Christianity. And how do we do that then, Jude? Well, then he leaves us this sentence. If we get Jude 20 and 21 up. The remedy is this, but you, beloved, but you, dear friends, these guys will do what they will do. They will go on to evil and go on to worse. They will go into chains of darkness, but you, beloved, this is what I want you to do. And this is a complex sentence, so we're going to break it down. There's one main clause and there's three subordinate clauses. The main clause has the verb and the imperative. The other three verbs are not in the participle form. So let's read it just as we would the imperative, if it was just the imperative verb. But you, dear friends, keep yourself in God's love. The word keep is in the imperative. You keep yourself in God's love. How you do that is going to be contingent upon the other three clauses, but that's what you are to do. Keep yourself in God's love. And I would say to you this, there are a number of translations of this verse, and while the NIV is very easy to understand, sort of it's in complexity, I really believe that it ought to read, as it does in the New American Standard, keep yourselves in the love of God. Because when we read it that way, then this way makes sense, as well as another way that's sort of hidden from this way. In other words, when I say, keep yourselves in the love of God, that's a two-way street. Because it does tell me then I can keep myself in God's love, God's love to me, the love of God to me. But then it also compels me to keep myself in my love to God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And that love is a two-way street. And so, contending earnestly for the faith, the faith that is in assault, and take no, uh, be certainly certain about this, the faith that we believe, and the faith that we long to express and see is under assault by evil forces. And it's not the evil forces that we fight against, it's contending for the faith that we're fighting against. By doing so, we must remember these things simultaneously. One, that God loves me. That God loves me. You see, Cain forgot that. 
Cain thought that only God loved Abel. And it was true, it was true, God did accept Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. But what God went on to say, and Cain didn't want to hear, is if Cain, if you do the same thing, I will accept you as well. My love for you is equal. My acceptance of you is different because of what you bring to me. But my love to you is the same. We must always remember and keep in mind God's love to us. Because in the midst of the battle, in the midst of fighting against worldliness and rebellion, not just out there, but in our own heart, we must always remember God loves us. And that he puts us in situations from time to time for our own good. He brought the children of Israel into the wilderness, not to destroy them, but to benefit them. Because that was really the most expedient and safest way to the promised land. And if they would have just trusted God's word that he would be with them as they entered the promised land, they would have found success. Instead, they wandered for 40 years in the very wilderness that was meant to sustain them for just a few weeks until they could get there. But sometimes that's true in our own experience, isn't it? We come into a wilderness place. We come into a dry place in our life, a place where things don't make sense anymore. The things that were true now are not true to, in a sense. They've been always true, but the things that I could count on, I can't count on now. Dry times in our spiritual life, struggling times, circumstantial difficulties. And we wonder, does God love us? Or do we grumble saying, I wish we would be here. I wish God was this way. And does our fellowship with God lack at that time? You see, if we're going to contend earnestly for the faith, we've got to keep ourselves in the love of God for us and in the love we have for God to him. Because only in obedience can we attend and contend successfully for the faith. Because what we're asked to do, dear friends, and I don't want to be too extreme or dramatic, at some point in time has cost men their lives. But only those who love God in this way, that is completely and wholly as we are loved, can come to that place and not run away. We think of Jesus himself, don't we? If we call ourselves followers of Christ, this is the one place in, in life that I have never even come close to achieving, but, but it's always that ideal that's out there for me. That night when he was betrayed, right? The night that he was betrayed, what did he do? He went alone and prayed. The disciples that were with him fell asleep, and he went alone. And the scripture says that in his agony, in his distress, his, his sweat became blood. He, he was so distressed for what he was about to do. He was so distressed for having sin be put on him that his sweat became blood. And that's why the Hebrew writer says, listen, none of us have striven against sin unto blood. None of us have really striven against these things, against the, 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 the things that have tried to uproot and, and destroy Christianity to our very blood. None of us here at least. And yet we read men who did, who stood steadfast so that the faith would not be destroyed. 
and they stood either on funeral pyres while the flames consumed their body, or they went to the gallows to be hung, but they would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in their worship, their temple or their building was set on fire by those who destroyed and sought to destroy the Lord. They would not give up. But in our day and age, there is a more insidious kind of struggle that we have to, to struggle against. And it's not outward, it's not outward persecution. It's the inward lies, those little niggling lies that tell us God is not who God says he is, that tells us that we are the masters of our life, we are the lords of our, de of our determination, we are the lords of our future, and not the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's the love to God that will keep us there, because the love of God has as its essence obedience. And so three things, and we conclude here this morning, three things keep us in the love of God. The subordinate clauses, building ourselves up on our faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so let's look at the first one, building ourselves up in our faith. We realize that to keep ourselves in the love of God, to keep ourselves in a place where we know God loves us, we know God loves us whether the circumstances tell us that or not, whether our own feelings tell us that or not, irregardless of how we feel or what our eyes see, to keep ourselves loving God, being obedient to his call and direction and lordship and mastery, recognizes that we need a strength that's outside of ourselves. We need something that is beyond the normal natural ability for us to do good or to do right. And that's why Hebrews 11 becomes such an important verse in this whole discussion. Hebrews 11, when it talks about what faith can do, faith can move mountains. Faith can bring the dead back to life again. Faith can face armies and rout armies. Faith can work righteousness. Faith can do only the things that God can do. And so building ourselves up on our faith becomes the most important thing for us to keep ourselves in the love of God. And how do we build ourselves up on our faith? Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of God. You see, one of the things that these men are trying to destroy is your confidence in the Word of God. In today's age, they're trying to say this is an antiquated book. That really only the red portions matter. That Paul doesn't understand women, that the New Testament doesn't really talk about what the Old Testament talks about in terms of sexual morality and sexual ethic. They're trying to destroy the Word of God. That's one of the ways that we destroy the faith, because the faith is built on many small faiths, that my faith and your faith do build the faith in Bluffton, Indiana, Northeast Indiana. It's our individual faith that either pushes faith forward or lets it slide back. And it's the Word of God that builds our faith, and it's our lack of confidence in the Word of God that destroys our faith. So Jude is saying, listen, beloved, build yourself up. Remember, because he says this, this truth that was delivered to you was delivered to you once and for all. It was delivered to you in the first century, but it still speaks to you today. It was delivered to you at the, at the, at the peril of men who gave their lives for this message. 
It was given to you and attested by miracles and wonders and signs, and it's as valid now as it was then. It was given to us once and all. That's why the canon closes at Revelation. That's why there's no new canon, because everything that needs to be said has been said. And, the, and, 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 and those who seek to bring licentiousness or, or, or bring license into this are always, always questioning, hath God said, and where have we heard that before? In the garden. Hath God said? Hath God said? Build yourself up on your faith. Do not let the confidence you have in the word of God grow lax. Do not let anyone pull you off of that confidence, for it will keep you in the love of God. And then second, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. I want to read two verses because there's a lot of discussion about what this means. But whether it means this or that or the other, there's some fundamental things that I think we can all agree that it means. Romans, the eighth chapter, speaking about the very same thing, about life in the Spirit, about the faith, says in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being strong when we're weak. It says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. First of all, that's what praying in the Spirit makes us realize, that we don't know how to pray. If it just says pray, then we could learn it from a book. If it just says pray, we could read it out of a book. But praying in the Spirit already makes me realize that I might not know how to pray, and I need help. That's why I've been given the helper. That's what the Holy Spirit's called, isn't he? The helper. What has he been given to me to help? To pray. Why? Because I don't know how to pray for this. I don't know how to pray for you. I don't know how to pray for our nation. I don't know how to pray for our church. But he knows how to pray. For it says this, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know if I'm making a mosh of this message or not. I didn't feel like I really got through this morning the first time, but I know in my spirit there's a groaning and a deep groaning going on for our world, for our church, for the faith. There's a deep groaning in the Spirit's interceding so that we would not lose the faith that we would pass it on to our children and their children. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Then pray in the Spirit. Now, you may pray in another language. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that. Paul says, I pray in tongues more than you all, and I thank God I do, and I can say that as well. So there's times when I pray in an unknown tongue. That's praying in the Spirit. But you don't have to have an unknown tongue to pray with groanings too deep to be uttered because there's no utterance. It's just groaning. It's the heart. It's the Spirit who gives us entrance into the presence of God. Ephesians 2.18, but we all, through him, speaking of Jesus Christ, have our access by one Spirit into the presence of the Father. It's where we meet with God through the Holy Spirit. It's where we know, do we not, that God is our Father. That's why we've been given a spirit of adoption, the spirit, the Holy Spirit who's adopting us, whereby we cry, what? Abba, Father, help us, Lord. Help us, Daddy. Take us into your lap. Bring us into thee, for the things that we must do are too great for us, but we must do them nonetheless. And then the last thing, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord 
Jesus Christ to eternal life, faith, hope, and love. Those three, <laughs> by the Spirit. <laughs> it's, it's the Bible message in one verse or two verses. But notice what he says. We're not waiting for judgment. We're not waiting for them to get theirs. And that's so tempting to do sometimes, isn't it? We just wish that God would get them. But Jude is not asking us, remember, to fight against flesh and blood. He's not asking us to revile them like they revile the Savior. He's not asking us to mock them like they mock us. He's asking us to contend for the faith, and that faith has a hope in the coming again of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Because unless it was by the grace of God, which these men have made license, unless it was by the grace of God, there go I. Right? If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be Cain. I would be Korah. I would be Balaam. And I would be assigned to utter darkness and the outer courts and the eternal fire. And so what I look for is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And so my faith is in the eternal word of God. My love is in a God who does not change, who proves that he loved me on the cross and who gives me the spirit by which I can prove my love to him through obedience. And my hope is in his return when he will show mercy to those he will show mercy. I am confident he will judge who he will judge for he is a just God, but I'm looking for mercy for me. And because I'm looking for mercy, I want to do nothing Nothing that would ever in any way destroy your faith or the faith. And therefore, I'm back again to keeping myself in the love of God. So let me read the doxology, the benediction at the end of the chapter, and I'll leave you to your day. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, what a promise, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. That's what I was talking about. Not just around God, but in his presence, the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, his authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen.